morning. Uh, we're going to be in Leviticus 25 here in just a few moments. If you want to turn there, that would probably be helpful. Uh, although to begin, I, I want to uh, I want to tell you uh, about what Mandy's been up to. She uh, she's been volunteering. Uh, Mandy's been volunteering every Tuesday night with Love Inc. Recently, for uh, well, it's been maybe like six months now or so. But but recently, uh, the thing that she's been doing. Uh, for the last number of weeks, six weeks or so, something like that, is she's been uh, what's called an ally in Loving's faith and finance class. So they have a teacher of the class, and then for all of the members of the class, the people that are attending the class, they each have what's called an ally, somebody that walks alongside them. Uh, they have conversations during the class itself at, at various times. They meet uh, sometimes midweek, and, uh, and, and uh, Mandy's been kind of helping uh, her, her person uh, try to get their life back on track when it comes to finances. And so, uh, so Mandy, uh, she's, this, she's an ally for this young woman, and this woman that she's working with has all sorts of things going against her, like a million things uh, that she's trying to dig herself out of. She's, a, she's an alcoholic uh, who is sober but, but still in recovery and still trying to deal with that. She has a bunch of debt. Uh, that that has racked up over the years. She has she has almost no money to her name, like like almost no money. Uh, and and be, before, just just up until recently, she wasn't really working that many hours. She didn't really realize it that that she, oh I could pick up more shifts. She just she has all these things that are kind of working against her. And then the kicker is that she has about a hundred thousand dollars in student loans. She, she has a degree. And, uh, and is employable in theory, but she's got all these loans, $100,000 worth of student loans. So she has dug herself into a massive hole, correct? Uh, but, bless her heart, she is working like crazy to get back on her feet. She is making so much progress. She's doing awesome. She's getting rid of debts. Like it seems, all, all the time, she's, she's saving up. She's getting rid of debts, saving more, or, uh, working more, spending less. Uh, from what Mandy tells me, just a model student in the class, like the envy of all the other allies. Everyone's jealous that Mandy gets to work with this student because she's making an effort. She's trying her darndest to dig herself out of this hole uh, and, and get back on her feet. But she still has these darn student loans. Like as much as she's working uh, to, to get herself back, she still has these student loans that are this mountain of debt that she's trying to climb uh, up uh, and they still hang oppressively around her neck. Now, uh, imagine with me for a moment, kind of an imaginary scenario here. What if suddenly in an instant, those loans were gone? Like, she's working so hard. She's got so, she's made so much effort, so much progress, uh, has turned her life around and is back on track. But what if in a moment, those loans were gone? Her debt was gone, and she could have a fresh start. What if some rich benefactor just paid him off, just gone in a moment? That would change her whole life, right? Like, 
her whole life trajectory would change in an instant. Everything would change. Uh, and I, I'm, not, I'm not telling that story because I expect that that's going to happen. But that is the sort of scenario that we're going to read about in the book of Leviticus today. The sort of generosity, forgiveness, and love that can radically alter people's existence. So let, let's jump in. Leviticus 25. You may want to follow along. I'll be reading some and skipping some, uh, but here we go. Leviticus 25, starting with verse 1. The Lord said to Moses on Mount Sinai, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When you enter the land I am going to give you, the land itself must observe a Sabbath to the Lord. Uh, For six years sow your fields, And for six years prune your vineyards and gather their crops. But in the seventh year, the land is to have a year of Sabbath rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. Do not sow your fields or prune your vineyards. Do not reap what grows uh, of itself or harvest the grains of your untended vines. The land is to have a year of rest. Whatever the land yields during the Sabbath year will be food for you, for yourself, uh, your male and female servants, and the hired worker and temporary resident who live among you, as well as for your livestock and the wild animals in your land. Whatever the land produces may be eaten. So, even the land needs to rest. Even the land needs to rest. Nothing can just keep going and going, and going, and going. That's not the way that creation was formed. That's not the way that this whole system was created. All of creation needs time to take a break, even the land. Which, as Montanans, surrounded by farmland, we know that this ritual isn't just a nice spiritual exercise. We actually know that this, uh, that this kind of wisdom here in these seven verses is wise for the land itself. It's wise agriculturally. Uh, it's actually really healthy for the land. That, that rotating crops, that alternating years of planting, that taking a break is good and will produce even more harvest. But there's an element of trust in God here as well. Uh, I mean, we know that it's good for the land to do this kind of thing, but this, these verses are calling out a level of trust that is really, really difficult. Trusting that God will provide in the off years. Trusting that, that God will provide for everyone and everything if we don't intentionally and actively harvest on that, in that seventh season. If we'll take a break, will God actually take care of us? So you work the land for six years, and then in the seventh it rests. Uh, You can take and eat whatever grows naturally, but there's no working for it. There's no striving for it. Uh, There's no clinging to it. Uh, It just has to rest, and we just have to trust. So that's called the Sabbath year. Six years of work, and then you take a year Uh, and the land rests. It's called the Sabbath year. So now in the text we translate to what's called the year of Jubilee. Verse 8, count off seven Sabbath years, seven times seven years, so that the seven Sabbath years amount to a period of 49 years. So we start with some good math. I was told that there would be no math, but now we have seven times seven, 49, and then after 49, 
comes 50, verse 9. Then have the trumpet sounded everywhere on the tenth day of the seventh month on the day of atonement, sound the trumpet through the land. Consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. Each of you is to return to your family property and to your own clan. So what what a trumpet call. We've had trumpet calls so far. It's kind of part of Jewish tradition. But man, this is a fun one. This is a fun trumpet call. Uh, the sound of freedom. This is a trumpet call of liberation and justice for all. You, you get to go home. You get to start over. No, ma- no matter what has happened over the last 50 years, no matter how hard it's gotten, and we'll read about some of the hardships here coming up, but no matter what has happened, you get to come home. You get to have a fresh start. Uh, things get made right again. Uh, you're no longer under the thumb of oppression. You know what? You get to come home. That's a liberating trumpet call. Verse 11. The 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. Do not sow and do not reap. Whatever grows of itself or harvest, uh, or harvest the untended vines. For it is a jubilee and is to be holy for you. Eat only what is taken directly from the field. So we get this another year of rest. This time it's two years in a row, right? We've had, we've had seven Sabbath years. So technically year 49 would have been a Sabbath year. You don't plant, you don't harvest. Uh, you, just, you just kind of reap whatever happens to come up and you just take care of your family in a subsistence kind of way. And then year 50 is another year of rest. So you got two years now of trusting God that God will take care uh, of you. That, uh, so this is some huge trust in God's provision. Uh, verse 14. If you sell the land to any of your own people or buy land from them, do not take advantage of each other. You are to buy from your own people on the basis of the number of years since the Jubilee, and they are to sell to you on the basis of the number of years left for harvesting crops. When the years are many, you are to increase the price, and when the years are few, you are to decrease the price because, of what, is real, because what is really being sold to you is a number of crops. We're not selling land, we are selling crops. We're sharecroppers, essentially. And so we prorate the amount. If it's going to be a long time that you get to reap all of the benefits of this land, then you pay more. If it's going to be a lesser amount, you pay less. We're, we're understanding this, I'm assuming. Uh, do not take advantage of each other, but fear your God. I am the Lord your God. So during the 50 years, if you get yourself in a pickle and have to sell your own land, which, which would just be the worst? I mean, this isn't something, this isn't a simple kind of verse. Like if this happens, things have hit the fan. Like something has gone wrong where you're having to sell your own land. Your land is who you are. Your land is your land is about family. It's about identity. It's, it's, it's about who you are as a people. Per- personhood is wrapped up in place for these folks, and it is for us as well. You're supposed to hang on to that property with everything that you have. So obviously, if you're selling, it's gotten desperate. If you're, if you're willing to sell your land, it's gotten so bad that you feel like this is, your, this is my only hope. This is my only way of taking care of my family. I just, I have to do it, I guess. 
Obviously, it's gotten desperate, which is why there are these rules about treating people justly and fairly in the midst of this tragedy. If you're buying from someone, that means they're desperate, and the temptation could be there to take advantage of them, to charge them an outrageous, or to, to offer them an outrageously low price, to, to lowball them uh, because you know that they'll probably take whatever. And so there's these beautiful justice rules that say, no, 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 we don't do that to each other. We don't take advantage of each other. You're going to pay a prorated price based on when the next jubilee is because you're actually going to give that land back. And these people, no matter how desperate it got, every 50 years, they're going to get to come home. They're going to get a restart. Uh, And there are economic justice issues at play here. But verse 17 is also this beautiful theological reminder uh, for justice. Don't take advantage of one another because that's not the way that God's kingdom operates. God's kingdom is not like that. It doesn't take advantage of people. It seeks the welfare of everyone, especially those who are desperate, especially those who feel like they're on the margins and can just barely make it. Those are the people that God's kingdom really cares for. So please, please do not take advantage of them. Uh, Skipping forward to verse 23, the land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine. This is God speaking. The land is mine. Uh, and you reside in my land as foreigners and strangers. Uh, so there's more theological reasoning for these, these, this ethical behavior. Don't get too wrapped up in these real estate deals. Don't try to cheat people. Don't try to swindle people. Don't try to lowball people. Uh, don't worry so much about this because it's ultimately not yours. It's God's. It's mine. Uh, Don't do anything permanent because this isn't really your land anyway. It's God. Verse verse 25. Uh, If anyone among you becomes poor and sells some of their property, uh, their nearest relative is to come and redeem what they have sold. If, however, there is no one to redeem it for them, but later on they prosper and acquire sufficient means to redeem it themselves, they are to determine the value for the years since they sold it and refund the the balance to the one whom they... Whom they sold it. Uh, They can then go back to their own property. But if they do not acquire the means to repay, what was sold will remain in the possession of the buyer until the year of Jubilee. It will be returned in the Jubilee and they can go back to their property. So, more rules to just help people on the margins, people that feel like, "I, I can't make it. I'm struggling here and I feel desperate enough to sell my own land. Just more rules to help folks that are barely scraping by. Verse 29, anyone who sells a house in a walled city retains the right of redemption a full year after its sale. During that time, the seller may redeem it. If it is not redeemed before a full year has passed, the house in the walled city shall belong permanently to the buyer and the buyer's descendants. It is not to be returned in Jubilee, but houses in villages without walls around them are to be considered as belonging to the open country. They can be redeemed, and they are to be returned in the Jubilee. And I, I don't, I don't totally know exactly what's happening in this verse, but but essentially, there's different rules for things that happen in the city 
than out in the country where you have big spreads of land uh, where, where you can farm them. There's different rules here. Uh, so in the city, it's, it's more like you're pawning your land. If you have to sell your house within the city, you have a period of time. They say it was a year. You have a year in order to reclaim that land. Otherwise, it goes away, like, like if you sell something to a pawn shop. But houses outside the city are subject to jubilee rules. They are to be returned. Uh, verse 35. If any, of you, uh, if any of your own people become poor and are unable to support themselves among you, help them as you would a foreigner and a stranger so they can continue to live among you. Do not take interest or any profit from them, but fear your God so that your poor neighbors may continue to live among you. You must not lend them money at interest or sell them food at a profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. Just, just take care of people. I mean, we're starting to just boil it down to like, don't rip people off. Just take care of people. Don't cheat them. Don't even try to make money off of them because that is not the way God's kingdom works. God didn't do that to, to them as they were being brought out of Egypt. So don't do that to each other. Now the rest of the chapter is about slavery. Verse 39, if any of your own people become poor and sell themselves to you, do not make them work as slaves. They are to be treated as hired workers or temporary residents among you. They are to work for you until the year of Jubilee. Then they and their children are to be, to be released and they will go back to their own clans and to the property of their ancestors because the Israelites are my servants whom I brought out of Egypt. They must not be sold as slaves. Do not rule over them ruthlessly, but fear your God. So this section is about proper treatment of our own people, about other Israelites here. If something happens, crops wither, rain doesn't come, the, the money dries up, and they have to not even just sell their land, but now they have to sell their, them, their very selves. Well, they're not to be treated as slaves. They are to be paid fairly and to, and to be given a chance uh, to get their land and their life back. They're not to be treated as slaves. Now, unfortunately, this next paragraph exists uh, where uh, we're not commanded to be as kind to our neighbors. Verse 44. Your male and female slaves are to come from the nations around you. So if you do want slaves, just don't take our people. Just go find, go find some folks outside our tribe. Ugh. Oh, this is rough. Uh, you may also buy some of the temporary residents living among you and members of their clans born uh, in your country, and they will become your property. You can bequeath them to your children as inherited property and can make them slaves for life. But you must not rule over your fellow Israelites ruthlessly. Now, I don't love that. I don't, I don't like that paragraph very much. Uh, but we do know from other places in Scripture, like in Exodus and Deuteronomy and Job and Proverbs, that slaves were called to be treated well, to not be abused, and, and that because all human beings have the same creator, any abuse of others, regardless of social status, is unacceptable to God. So hopefully they were treated well, but man, I, I, don't, I don't like that. I don't like that. 
that paragraph, and we're just, I'm just moving on. Uh, and then the chapter ends with a section about what to do if foreigners in Israel are the ones with the money and power, but, but we're going to move on for, for time's sake. Okay, so this chapter is awesome. I, I love, I've been looking forward to this chapter. I almost wanted to skip over chapter 24 last week, but it, it was, it had lots of wisdom too, but I, w- I was excited to get to chapter 25. It's so fun. Other than those three verses. Uh, but if you think about it as a whole, this, this chapter is great. So let's unpack it just a little bit more. I think there are some layers to this chapter that we need to we'll start kind of at the big top layer and then we'll, we'll keep kind of peeling away the onion a little bit. There, there are four layers to this chapter that I see and pro- probably more. So the first, the first is kind of this big, huge, obvious layer and it's this, uh, and this is, this is fun. Uh, the first huge obvious layer is this. The massive generosity that is pro- proposed in the year of Jubilee is the kind of action that can completely alter someone's life forever. I mean, this chapter is laced with verses where uh, if they did this or if we did something similar in our day, this would completely and radically alter people's lives forever. It is full of big acts of generosity, like change someone's life forever sorts of generosity. This chapter could put someone back on their feet. This is a second chance kind of chapter, a restart, an opportunity to recreate a life when something has happened that has gotten the whole train off the tracks. This is a big deal, an act of generosity, forgiveness, and love that can alter a family's existence for generations to come. And maybe we're called to some of these kind of actions. Maybe there are opportunities in your life once in a while where this first layer, you can do that, where you could step in in some sort of way that wouldn't cost you everything, but where you could say, I can do this somewhat costly thing and I can radically alter someone's life forever. And I think there's a calling to that. But the second layer of this text is that chapter 25 also invites an ongoing, ever-present base layer of generosity. If the top layer is there may be one or two times in your life where you could step in and radically alter someone's life forever by some massive form of generosity, then the next layer underneath of that is that we are called to generosity all day, every day in an ongoing, ever-present base layer of our life kind of way. We're, We're not just called to do some big, grandiose, generous act once every 50 years. We're called to be generous now and tomorrow and always. Leviticus 25 is about reshaping the way that we treat people on an everyday basis. Can, can we alter the way that we live so that we live with generosity every day, all day, and we are, we are uh, impacting people's lives with our generosity in incremental, small ways throughout every day of our life? Can we treat people well? Can we take care of people's needs? Can we not fleece each other? Can, 
Can we fight against systems of oppression now? Can we, can we pay people a decent wage? Can we charge a fair rate? Uh, or let, let's not enslave people in their desperate need. Uh, can we pay them like we should, like is fair and right? Don't just wait around for the occasional moment of grandiose generosity. Be kind, compassionate, generous, forgiving, loving now all day, every day. That, that's kind of the, the second layer of here. Now there's a third layer to this chapter, a, a deeper layer that, where we have to drill down a little further, and it's this. If we do this second layer kind of generosity, if we do what I just talked about, if we are generous always, if we fight against corruption and broken systems every day, if we treat people well and pay good wages and are fair and don't take advantage of people and help people who are in need now and every day, kind of this new base layer of generosity, if we do that, we might not even need the grandiose gestures of generosity that are commanded for every 50th year. I, if we lived generous lives all day, every day, in small, simple ways, we might not ever even need the big, grandiose gestures because we might have solved some problems along the way. We might have nipped some things in the bud before they ever got so bad that people were desperate and needed a big, grandiose gesture of, of generosity to help them. Let's not even allow people to fall prey to oppression and poverty and injustice and hunger and homelessness and human trafficking and abuse in the first place. If we see it in any level, let's stand up. Let's help people. Let's take people in. Let's offer meals. Let's, let's give some of our money. Let, if we see it in any way, shape, or form, Let's cut it off at the pass. Let's care for people in little manageable ways so that it never gets so bad for folks that they need massive help to dig themselves out of the holes that they find themselves in. What if the woman that Mandy's working with in Love, Inc., what if there would have been a few people along the way that said, I think there's a better way for you to manage your finances that won't mean that you've dug yourself into a hole so deep that you might never, ever get out of it. Well, what if we could be those kind of people that stepped in, in small, simple ways, small, simple acts of generosity and kindness, small bits of wisdom, wisdom here and there where we kept people from getting so dug into the holes that they find themselves in that they'll never emerge. Uh -huh. And then there's, there's one final layer to this text, and, and this is it. Generosity, forgiveness, and love should flow freely and willingly because we worship a God who freely and willingly showers us with generosity, forgiveness, and love. Uh, that, it comes up over and over and over throughout Leviticus 25. I am the Lord your God. I am the one who brought you out of Egypt. God says it over and over in a bunch of different ways that he is the Lord. He is the one who brought us out of our hardship and poverty. He is the one who saved us from the Egypts of our lives and brought us into the blessings of promised land. So we freely give to others because God freely gives to us. That is the reminder. That's why he says it over and over and over again because he wants us to keep remembering I was gracious and generous to you. I was forgiving to you. I was loving to you. 
So, so I'm forming you into a type of people that will be the exact same kind of people for everyone else. We have been offered an immensity of generosity, so we offer generosity to others out of the abundance that we have received. We've, we've received much, and so we give much. And that's kind of undergirding this whole process, this whole chapter on generosity is the idea that God has been generous to us. Now, I... Uh, I don't see this sort of debt-canceling, life-altering generosity all the time. Like, and you're probably like me, we're, we're, not, we're not the most generous kind of people in our culture, but when I see it, even if it is small and not grandiose, it catches me off guard with its, with its goodness, with its awesomeness. Uh, I, don't, I don't see it enough to where uh, I've become numb to it. So when I see these, these moments of generosity, even, even small things, even incremental kind of generosity, it, kind of, it blows me away. Like, like typing up some of these stories I'm about to share, like I was almost in tears just typing them up into my notes because it's so good and it's so beautiful. I was thinking back, you know, my family, we were in Austin, Texas this last March uh, so that I could officiate my cousin's wedding. And, uh, and this is a really rich part of my family, and they, they generously offered to pay our way down uh, to, to, to Austin. They, they really wanted me to be there and be able to officiate. Otherwise, we maybe couldn't have gone in the first place. But even so, even with my uncle uh, being willing to pay most of our expenses, things were still racking up. You know how vacation goes, right? Like, like a, a meal here or a, uh, or a car rental here. And things, things were just, the, the, the price was starting to build on this trip. And we were glad that we had gone. But there were a few moments where Mandy and I were sitting down with these expensive meals thinking, boy, we're going to we're gonna have to tighten our budget, tighten our purse strings in the next couple months to kind of make up for what's happening here. And uh, so we were at the rehearsal dinner, and it was at this, this big fancy restaurant, or this barbecue place, it was awesome. And, and at, a, at a certain point in the meal, uh, my uncle pulls me aside, and I knew that he was going to reimburse us for a few of the costs that we were incurring throughout the trip, but he pulls me aside and he kind of slips a wad of money into my hand. And, uh, you know, I'm trying to be, trying to be uh, couth here. You know, I, I didn't, like, pull it out and, like, count it. In, in front of him, I was trying to, be, trying to use my best manners. And so I just kind of slipped it in my pocket and thanked him for his incredible generosity and for helping us do this trip in, in general. And we get back to the table, and I slip the, slip the wad of money out of my pocket. It's $500. I'm like, oh, my God. Like, I was, I was expecting much, much less than that. And was, like, caught off guard by his incredible generosity. And it, like, it, like, changed the whole trip for us. Like, suddenly we could relax and enjoy and just be present, and we weren't counting every receipt and wondering if this was going to make us suffer for the months to come or what, what this meant we weren't going to be able to buy. It was just this beautiful act of generosity. Or I was thinking about a story. Uh, there was a family in our church, uh, and I'm not going to name any names, but there was a family in our church that had lost their food, their food stamps, and it was a 
massive deal for people that are kind of on the margins already and kind of struggling for that. They lost like a whole month's worth and they're, they're freaked out, kind, kind of scared. And, uh, and another, another family heard about it kind of through the grapevine. It wasn't, wasn't through me, but through some other conversations, they heard about this and they, they wanted it to remain anonymous, but, but they kind of used me as the mediator and they gave them about $1,000 worth of gift cards and, and supplies that their family needed in order to kind of make up and go far beyond uh, what, what this family had lost. And, and it's like, are you, are you kidding me? Just, just crazy. But the best, the best example of this sort of generosity that I know of personally, that the best one that I can think of, it, it also comes from one of our own families. And, uh, and I asked them uh, for permission to share this, uh, and they agreed uh, uh, that I could. So, uh, so I'm gonna, I'll probably make them uncomfortable because they're sitting here this morning, but I'm going to brag about a family here for a moment. I'm going to brag about Pat and Sarah Fleming and their family. Um, a couple years ago... Uh, they had an uncle, uh, Pat's uncle, who was really struggling with life and, uh, and especially struggling with his home. This is a home that had been passed down through, through their family and it, it at one point was a, was a great home, but it, it had gotten to the point where it was out of control. Uh, the, their uncle hadn't been paying his taxes and the house was falling apart and there was no running water or heat. Uh, every room in the house was filled to the gills with stuff uh, in, in fact, it had gotten to the point where the government was threatening to take the house away, and, and so uh, Pat's uncle was actually on the brink of homelessness, and, uh, and uh, for whatever reason, no one else in the family was really able or, or willing to help, and, and so Pat and Sarah uh, stepped in after a lot of prayer, I think. They, they stepped in, and uh, Pat's uncle gave them the house uh, if, if he could stay there and live with them. So that was, that was kind of the arrangement. You can have the house, but, uh, but I'd like to be able to stay here and, and live with you. And so over the last couple of years, uh, the Flemings have sunk over $200,000 into fixing up this house. Like it needed massive amounts of work. Like everything that they got from selling their old house has gone into fixing up uh, this new house and, and to making it livable. That, uh, they've had to deal with a, a man who, uh, I've, I've met him a few times, he, he does seem like he'd be a little hard to live with. Uh, he's, uh, he's, he's an interesting fellow, kind of set in his ways. Uh, Pat was telling me that, that, he would, uh, that they would get yelled at for like throwing away pasta that had been in the house for like 15 years, uh, that he would yell at them for like putting up Christmas decorations, that, that if they made any noise in the house, he would turn his movie volume up to like ridiculous levels that would shake the whole house. Uh, it just it's kind of tough, tough situation. It's been a struggle with lots and lots of tears and so much difficulty, but they have stayed the course. They've prayed a lot, and they've trusted in God's provision. And here's what Pat wrote to me about the whole ordeal. Would we change it? No. The reason being is that my uncle is in a much better place. He was lonely. He was living in a condemned building. He hated life. He hated everyone. He comes home now and is happy to see us. He likes our kids. He has a warm meal when he comes home each night. He has people to talk to. 
He sees the changes that we have made to the house and he loves them, even though he put up a fight on every single change. He loves holidays. He buys my kids stuff for Christmas and random occasions. God had a plan and it is hard to see the benefits unless you dive in. That's, how about that? That, that is the sort of generosity, forgiveness, and love that, that Leviticus 25 is spurring us on toward. That is the sort of life that I want to live. One that blesses the people around me. So thank you, Fleming family, for demonstrating the generosity of God. Now, Historians are, are pretty sure that the Israelites never actually followed through with the year of Jubilee. Like, there's no, there's no historical evidence that they ever did this. It got written down, but it may or may not have ever happened. There is no proof that they ever actually did what is written here in this chapter. Uh, probably because it sounds way too hard. I'm not sure I'd want to either. But regardless, the message is still the same for us today. The invitation is to be people of radical generosity, forgiveness, and love because God is a God of radical generosity, forgiveness, and love. So let's take the risk of radical generosity in huge ways and in small in simple, in incremental, in everyday kind of ways. Let's be on the lookout for ways that we can prayerfully and courageously step in and bless people through, the, through lives of radical generosity, forgiveness, and love. Let's be people who generously work toward liberty and justice for all. Let's partner with Jesus through lives of radical generosity in proclaiming and enacting what Isaiah 61 and Luke 4 call the year of the Lord's favor, the year of Jubilee. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your incredible generosity to us, that you continue to this day to pull us out of the oppressions of Egypt that we too often find ourselves in. You have been good to us. We celebrate the goodness of God today. We celebrate how fantastic you are, that all our lives you have been faithful. And so out of that faithfulness, would we have the courage to do the same, to be generous, to give of what we have, to give our time and our talents and our treasures, to, to, to be willing to be present in people's lives, to be on the lookout for ways in which we can help those who might find themselves falling through the cracks. Help us to be generous, forgiving, and loving in big and small ways each and every day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.